Chapter One of Uncle Silas A Tale of Bartram Howe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Uncle Silas A Tale of Bartram Howe by Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu. Chapter One Austin Ruthin of Knoll and His Daughter it was winter that is about the second week in november and great gusts were rattling at the windows and wailing and thundering among our tall trees and ivied chimneys a very dark night and a very cheerful fire blazing a pleasant mixture of good round coal and spluttering dry wood in a genuine old fireplace in a sombre old room black wainscoting glimmered up to the ceiling in small ebony panels a cheerful clump of wax candles on the tea-table many old portraits some grim and pale others pretty and some very graceful and charming hanging from the walls few pictures except portraits long and short were there on the whole i think you would have taken the room for our parlour it was not like our modern notion of a drawing-room it was a long room too and every way capacious but irregularly shaped a girl of a little more than seventeen looking i believe younger still slight and rather tall with a great deal of golden hair dark grey-eyed and with a countenance rather sensitive and melancholy was sitting at the tea-table in a reverie i was that girl the only other person in the room the only person in the house related to me was my father he was mr ruthyn of knoll so called in his county but he had many other places was of a very ancient lineage who had refused a baronetage often and it was said even a viscounty being of a proud and defiant spirit and thinking themselves higher in station and purer of blood than two-thirds of the nobility into whose ranks it was said they had been invited to enter all of this family law i knew but little and vaguely only what is to be gathered from the fireside talk of old retainers in the nursery i am sure my father loved me and i know i loved him with the sure instinct of childhood i apprehended his tenderness although it was never expressed in common ways but my father was an oddity he had been early disappointed in parliament where it was his ambition to succeed though a clever man he failed there where very inferior men did extremely well then he went abroad and became a connoisseur and a collector took a part on his return in literary and scientific institutions and also in the foundation and direction of some charities but he tired of this mimic government and gave himself up to a country life not that of a sportsman but rather of a student staying sometimes at one of his places and sometimes at another and living a secluded life rather late in life he married and his beautiful young wife died leaving me their only child to his care this bereavement i have been told changed him made him more odd and taciturn than ever and his temper also except to me more severe there was also some disgrace about his younger brother 
my uncle silas which he felt bitterly he was now walking up and down this spacious old room which extending round an angle at the far end was very dark in that quarter it was his wont to walk up and down thus without speaking an exercise which used to remind me of chateaubriand's father in the great chamber of the chateau de combourg at the far end he nearly disappeared in the gloom and then returning emerged for a few minutes like a portrait with a background of shadow and then again in silence faded nearly out of view this monotony and silence would have been terrifying to a person less accustomed to it than i as it was it had its effect i have known my father a whole day without once speaking to me though i loved him very much i was also much in awe of him while my father paced the floor my thoughts were employed about the events of a month before so few things happened at knoll out of the accustomed routine that a very trifling occurrence was enough to set people wondering and conjecturing in that serene household my father lived in remarkable seclusion except for a ride he hardly ever left the grounds of knoll and i don't think it happened twice in the year that a visitor sojourned among us there was not even that mild religious bustle which sometimes besets the wealthy and moral recluse my father had left the church of england for some odd sect i forget its name and ultimately became i was told a swedenborgian but he did not care to trouble me upon the subject so the old carriage brought my governess when i had one the old housekeeper mrs rusk and myself to the parish church every sunday and my father in the view of the honest rector who shook his head over him a cloud without water carried about of winds and a wandering star to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness corresponded with the minister of his church and was provokingly contented with his own fertility and illumination and mrs rusk who was a sound and bitter churchwoman said he fancied he saw visions and talked with angels like the rest of that rubbish i don't know that she had any better foundation than analogy and conjecture for charging my father with supernatural pretensions and in all points when her orthodoxy was not concerned she loved her master and was a loyal housekeeper i found her one morning superintending preparations for the reception of a visitor in the hunting-room it was called from the pieces of tapestry that covered its walls representing scenes a la wouvermans of falconry and the chase dogs hawks ladies gallants and pages in the midst of whom mrs rusk in black silk was rummaging drawers counting linen and issuing orders who is coming mrs rusk well she only knew his name it was a mr brierly my papa expected him to dinner and to stay for some days i guess he's one of those creatures dear for i mentioned his name just to dr clay the rector and he says there is a dr brierly a great conjurer among the swedenborg set and that's him i do suppose in my hazy notion of these sectaries there was mingled a suspicion of necromancy and a weird freemasonry that inspired something of awe and antipathy mr brierly arrived time enough to dress at his leisure before dinner 
he entered the drawing-room a tall lean man all in ungainly black with a white choker and either a black wig or black hair dressed in imitation of one a pair of spectacles and a dark sharp short visage rubbing his large hands together and with a short brisk nod to me whom he plainly regarded merely as a child he sat down before the fire crossed his legs and took up a magazine this treatment was mortifying and i remember very well the resentment of which he was quite unconscious his stay was not very long not one of us divined the object of his visit and he did not prepossess us favourably he seemed restless as men of busy habits do in country houses and took walks and a drive and read in the library and wrote half a dozen letters his bedroom and dressing-room were at the side of the gallery directly opposite to my father's which had a sort of ante-room en suite in which were some of his theological books the day after mr Bryerley's arrival i was about to see whether my father's water carafe and glass had been duly laid on the table in this ante-room and in doubt whether he was there i knocked at the door i suppose they were too intent on other matters to hear but receiving no answer i entered the room my father was sitting in his chair with his coat and waistcoat off mr Bryerley kneeling on a stool beside him rather facing him his black scratch wig leaning close to my father's grizzled hair there was a large tome of their divinity law i suppose open on the table close by the lank black figure of mr Bryerley stood up and he concealed something quickly in the breast of his coat my father stood up also looking paler i think than i ever saw him till then and he pointed grimly to the door and said go mr Bryerley pushed me gently back with his hands to my shoulders and smiled down from his dark features with an expression quite unintelligible to me i had recovered myself in a second and withdrew without a word the last thing i saw at the door was the tall slim figure in black and the dark significant smile following me and then the door was shut and locked and the two swedenborgians were left to their mysteries i remember so well the kind of shock and disgust i felt in the certainty that i had surprised them at some perhaps debasing incantation a suspicion of this mr Bryerley, of the ill-fitting black coat the white choker and a sort of fear came upon me and i fancied he was asserting some kind of mastery over my father which very much alarmed me i fancied all sorts of dangers in the enigmatical smile of the lank high priest the image of my father as i had seen him it might be confessing to this man in black who was i knew not what haunted me with the disagreeable uncertainties of a mind very uninstructed as to the limits of the marvellous i mentioned it to no one but i was immensely relieved when the sinister visitor took his departure the morning after and it was upon this occurrence that my mind was now employed some one said that dr johnson resembled a ghost who must be spoken to before it will speak but my father in whatever else he may have resembled a ghost did not in that particular for no one but I in his household, and I very seldom, dared to address him until first addressed by him. 
I had no notion how singular this was until I began to go out a little among friends and relations, and found no such rule in force anywhere else. As I leaned back in my chair, thinking, this phantasm of my father came, and turned, and vanished with a solemn regularity. It was a peculiar figure, strongly made, thick-set, with a face large and very stern. He wore a loose black velvet coat and waistcoat. It was, however, the figure of an elderly rather than an old man, though he was then past seventy, but firm and with no sign of feebleness. I remember the start with which, not suspecting that he was close by me, I lifted my eyes and saw that large rugged countenance looking fixedly on me from less than a yard away. After I saw him, he continued to regard me for a second or two, and then, taking one of the heavy candlesticks in his gnarled hand, he beckoned me to follow him, which, in silence and wondering, I accordingly did. He led me across the hall, where there were lights burning, and into a lobby by the foot of the back stairs, and so into his library. It is a long, narrow room, with two tall, slim windows at the far end, now draped in dark curtains. Dusky it was, with but one candle, and he paused near the door, at the left-hand side of which stood, in those days, an old-fashioned press or cabinet of carved oak. In front of this he stopped. He had odd, absent ways, and talked more to himself, I believe, than to all the rest of the world put together. "'She won't understand,' he whispered, looking at me inquiringly. "'No, she won't, will she?' Then there was a pause, during which he brought forth from his breast-pocket a small bunch of some half-dozen keys, on one of which he looked frowningly, every now and then balancing it a little before his eyes, between his finger and thumb, as he deliberated. I knew him too well, of course, to interpose a word. "'They are easily frightened. Ay, they are. I'd better do it another way.' And pausing, he looked in my face as he might upon a picture. "'They are, yes. I had better do it another way. Another way. Yes. And she'll not suspect. She'll not suppose.' Then he looked steadfastly upon the key, and from it to me, suddenly lifting it up, and said abruptly, "'See, child,' and after a second or two, "'Remember this key.' It was oddly shaped, and unlike others. "'Yes, sir,' I always called him, sir. "'It opens that,' and he tapped it sharply on the door of the cabinet. "'In the daytime it is always here,' at which word he dropped it into his pocket again. "'You see? And at night, under my pillow. You hear me?' "'Yes, sir.' "'You won't forget this cabinet. Oak, next the door, on your left. You won't forget?' "'No, sir.' "'Pity she's a girl, and so young. Aye, a girl, and so young. No sense. Giddy. You say you'll remember?' "'Yes, sir. It behoves you.' He turned round and looked full upon me, like a man who has taken a sudden resolution and I think for a moment he had made up his mind to tell me a great deal more. But if so, he changed it again, 
and after another pause he said slowly and sternly you will tell nobody what i have said under pain of my displeasure oh no sir good child except he resumed under one contingency that is in case i should be absent and dr bryerly you recollect the thin gentleman in spectacles and a black wig who spent three days here last month should come and inquire for the key you understand in my absence yes sir so he kissed me on the forehead and said let us return which accordingly we did in silence the storm outside like a dirge on a great organ accompanying our flitting End of chapter 1